Welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is David Krulak, who wrote the book, How I Started With Nothing and Made $12 Million in Real Estate Part-Time, and the real estate lessons I learned along the way. David, thank you so much for being on the show today. So excited to have you. How you doing? Pretty good. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. It's great. Every time, you know, I, I meet such a, a brilliant mind, as they say, I, the first time we met down at the Mid-Atlantic Summit, Dave Van Horn pointed to you and he said, that's the guy, you, you got to go pick his brain. So I'm glad I got to speak to you then and, and got to pick up your book this year and I'm blown away by it. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal, right? So you talk about all the deals and you categorize them in this book into three parts and it's it's amazing so many chapters and so many deals it's it's before we get into the thick of it i want to start at the beginning so how how did you get started in real estate and what are you up to these days uh, a friend of mine got involved in real estate and uh, i talk about that in the beginning of the book um he bought a property and he did very well with it and I was really impressed and I decided I'd like to do something else along those lines. And uh, so uh, I was looking for property to buy. Uh, I had a, a low paying entry level job and I looked at lots and lots of properties. Um, properties that I liked, I couldn't afford. Properties I could afford, I didn't like. Uh, so I looked for months and months and months and I would tell everybody that I knew that I was looking for property. And somebody who I worked with said, well, they're having this auction on the street where I live. They're going to be selling a house. So I went and looked at the house. And uh, <clears throat> it was nicer than anything else that I had looked at. Um, it was, I think, around 17 years old. So it was relatively new. And it was in good condition. It was owned by the state. They had bought it to put in a highway interchange. And the interchange was going to uh, come into a subdivision. And the people who lived in the subdivision protested and didn't like the route of this interchange. And um, so they got the state to redesign the interchange to skirt the perimeter of the subdivision rather than going into the subdivision. They ended up with uh, three extra houses that they had already bought, but they didn't need for the highway expansion. They rented them for seven years at below market rents, by the way. And uh, then they decided, the state decided to sell. They needed an act of the legislature and the signature of the governor in order to sell these properties, which were considered excess to the needs of the state. Uh, so I went to the auction. Uh, the terms of the auction were that you needed 10% down the day of the auction and you had to settle in 30 days. I go to the auction. There were a couple other people bidding. Uh, after we got up a little bit, uh, the only other bidder was a real estate broker that I had recognized. Uh, I figured that he was buying the property not to live there. He was either going to flip it or uh, rent it. I figured that I could go higher than he could. Um, I'd never been to an auction before. I never bought any real estate before. I ended up um, 
bidding more than I had deposit to pay for. <laughs> but a friend of mine had come with me out of curiosity uh, to the auction, and uh, he lent me the money to make up the difference in uh, my deposit, and I ended up buying this property. I was renting an apartment. I gave notice at my apartment that uh, I wanted to leave in 45 days, figuring that'd give me enough time to settle and, and move. I had very little to move because I was only living in a one-bedroom apartment. Well, the 30 days come and pass, and we didn't settle. And so I went to the attorney general's office at the state where they were handling the sale, and I said, um, I'm going to be homeless. Um, is there any way that I can move into this property in advance of settlement? And the attorney, deputy attorney general that was handling the sale said, well, we really can't do that. He says, uh, we don't carry any insurance, so we couldn't let you move into the property. I said, well, that's no problem. I already got an insurance policy because I was figuring that we're going to settle in 30 days. And they said, well, if I show proof of insurance, that they would give me the keys and I could move in. So I did. And I moved into the property thinking that we're only going to be delayed maybe a few days. Well, there was a, a small title problem in that there was a little sliver of land at the back of this property that was going to be taken for the highway. And so the deed had to be rewritten to have new meets and bounds. And um, while I was living there, the state was paying for the sewer and the trash, which had to go to the deeded owner, which was the state. Plus it was during the summertime and uh, they had already hired a landscaping company to come and cut the grass every week, which was really good because I didn't own a lawnmower. And um, I paid the, the gas and the electric and the water, and they paid the sewer and the trash, and they paid the lawn service. And I also got a roommate to move in and pay me rent. And so I lived there, and I wasn't paying any rent, and I wasn't paying any mortgage payment, and this went on for six months. <laughs> and it was that point I decided, I said, this real estate, it's good stuff. <laughs> And I've never been able to repeat that deal again. <laughs> That's pretty good, getting the state to, to be your landlord. And, <laughs> and not charge me any rent. Yeah, it's even better. That's amazing. So it, it's, it's unique how you started it. It's funny because starting at an auction, you know, was that, did, was there, were you scared at all when that happened? Or is it, there's a certain amount of risk? Or are you I, was, just I was nervous. I'd never been to an auction before. I'd never even been to an auction for like, you know, household goods or anything else like that. Um, this was um, not where I was raised. You know, my parents weren't around to like help me or coach me. Mm. And I was, I was there by myself, you know. So I had to um, make split decisions. You know, there's auction and, you know, the other person bids. And then you have to decide whether you're going to bid or you're going to stop bidding. You know, I'd never been in that environment anymore. It was, it was nervous. Um, I don't think I'd say that I was scared. Um, I took a risk in bidding more than I had for a down payment, but um, it, it all worked out. 
Yeah. And you, you knew that calculated risk. And I, I love that. I think that's what real estate investors are. They're resourceful, right? If, if it's a good enough deal and you can see it and, and kind of feel it, you know, you can meet those little gaps here and there. And since then I've been to many, many auctions. I've been to auctions where they've been selling farms. You know, I've been to estate auctions. I've been to sheriff sales, tax sales. So I've been to, since then, I've been to hundreds of auctions. <laughs> That's great. Now, I want to start with with your mind and who you are as an investor. We were talking before. I I really love how in depth you know in each deal that you go into in your book and how you know we have this problem where I have a problem. You know, shiny object syndrome, right? If something pops up like, oh, this is the newest and greatest, and you're like, well, I didn't think about that, and you kind of get veered off. But how do you you know, look at real estate in general, right? And what's your thought process going forward when you see a deal? Um, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that I'm attracted to shiny object syndrome, mm -hmm. but when I see a property, I try to figure out, well, what could I do with this property? You know, what could be done to the property? What, what changes could I make to make the property better? Um, so I think along those lines and I've developed about 20 different acquisition methods that I use. And so what that does is it allows me when I see a situation that I'm able to, um, not necessarily plug it into only one method. Let's say, for example, that your specialty is short sale. Well, if that's all you know, you try to plug every deal into a short sale. Well, not every deal is going to fit into a short sale. Um, I like to say that um, um, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> you know, if you only have one tool, then you, you're looking how you can use only that one tool, but maybe that tool's not appropriate. You know, the hammer is a great tool. It comes in handy for lots of different functions, but you can't saw with it. You know, you can't do other, you can't uh, unscrew Phillips head screwdriver with a, with a hammer. So I, I view the acquisition methods as tools in my tool belt and I use certain tools in certain situations and in other situations, I use other situations just like you would use a hammer in certain situations and a screwdriver in another situation. Um, somebody once said to me, uh, well, isn't what you do risky? And there is risk, but I don't view it as being like risky. Like I don't lose any sleep overnight saying, well, this is really risky. And no, I try to, calculate the risk and try to minimize the risk by figuring out when I'm buying the property, what I'm going to do for it, what I'm going to do with it, you know, whether I'm going to keep it as a rental or whether I'm going to sell it, you know, how I'm going to prove it. So I'm thinking of my exit strategy before I even purchase the property. Hmm. It's interesting. You, you noted 20 different acquisition strategies. Do you mind sharing a couple of those? Sure. Um, as I already mentioned, um, I go to tax sales, I go to sheriff sales, um, I buy HUD properties, uh, you know, from um, 
housing and urban development. I've bought VA properties. Uh, I've gone to auctions where uh, people are selling the property because either the owner is deceased or the, uh, the owner's gone to nursing home or some other kind of um, place to live rather than their own home. Uh, I've bought probate property. Um, I'm under contract now to buy a property that's condemned. <laughs> um, that's a little interesting. Uh, I've bought landlocked property. I've bought properties that have failed perk test on them. So they're unbuildable. Um, I've bought properties in floodplains. I've bought properties with historic designations. Um, I've done a whole lot, a lot of different things. That's interesting. So what's your exit strategy on something that has a failed perk test, right? You can't build on it. Um, well, I have a real estate license. Uh, I'm not sure whether you are aware of that or not. I'm a real, I'm a licensed real estate broker mm -hmm. and I have uh, my own office. I'm the broker of record. I own the office. But in addition to that, uh, I went and got a license to do a state license to do perk test. And it's not that I really wanted to do the perk test. A perk test is a test you do to figure out whether the, the land is going to be suitable for a septic system. The reason that I went and, and took the courses and passed the test and got my license was we were doing land subdivision and development and most of the, the subdivisions that we were doing didn't have access to public sewer. So we needed to have perk approved lots. We had to have buildable lots in order to resell them. Uh, so I went and got the license mostly for the knowledge of how the test was done. Um, I can't do perk test on my own lots. That would be conflict of interest, but just knowing how the test should be done, um, siting of the test, know where on the lot is the best place to do the test. Um, all of that kind of information was really helpful. And, uh, we went into um, a subdivision that was a, a really large subdivision. It was like 3,000 lots. And we didn't do the subdivision. Somebody else did the subdivision. And they had done the subdivision before all the regulations came into effect for doing park tests and, and septics. So they did the subdivision. They didn't do park tests because it wasn't required at that time. And then later when people came to build on the lots, they had to do a perk test. And um, two thirds of the perk tests failed huh. in this subdivision. So people bought these lots with the, with the anticipation that they were gonna be able to build there. And then they'd go and do a perk test and it failed perk and then they couldn't build there. Well, after taking the course, you know, taking the courses and getting the license, I started looking at some of these lots and I couldn't explain why they failed. Hmm. Um, there's certain things that are obvious, you know, um, you can't do a perk test in a floodplain, for example. So if a lot is in a floodplain, obviously that's not going to be a good lot or, um, 
if it's too steeply sloped. Um, here, um, basically you can't do a perk test if it's more than 25% slope. So if it's a 30% slope, you can't do a perk test. So if you look at the lot and it's steep, you're not gonna be able to do a perk test there. If you see like a lot of rock outcrops and, and you know, a cliff and ledges and things like that, that's probably not gonna be suitable. But if you have a lot that's relatively level, you know, it doesn't have wetlands or doesn't have floodplain, doesn't have steep slope, um, there's a good, a better chance that it's gonna pass perk. So we went in and bought a bunch of these lots and we bought 116 of these lots in this one development. And uh, some of them had failed perk, some of them have never been perk, and some of them were uh, already passing perk test. But the ones that we needed to perk, we had a 99% success rate. <laughs> Whereas before, they only had a 33% success rate. Now, we were excluding the ones that were obviously failures. So we didn't go into lots that obviously weren't going to pass. Mm -hmm. so we only picked the cream of the crop. But we still were able to get passing perk tests on lots that previously had filled perk tests on them. You know, we, would, we would do the test in a different um, part of the lot a better suited, better sighted part of the lot. And we would do the test uh, with precision. Um, one part of the test is you dig these holes and you put water in and you measure how fast the water declines in the hole. Mm -hmm. The difference between passing and failing can be an eighth of an inch. So the margins are pretty small you know, an eighth of an inch one way or the other could mean whether you have a buildable lot or not. So we made sure that you know, we did the test you know, very precisely, that the measurements were very precisely, and you know, we got lots to pass perk that hadn't passed before. That's amazing, spotting the value. Yeah, and it was a very overlooked by everybody else, and uh, we were able to pick up lots uh, very cheaply because they, they were unbuildable. Um, some of the better ones that we had, um, I bought a lot for um, a thousand and then I bought the lot next to it for 500 and I combined them into one lot and we got a passing perk test on it and I sold it for 80,000. So we went from fifteen hundred to eighty thousand. Um, that was you know, one of the best ones we we did there. But we did other ones, and uh, you know, we made money on on every. We bought lots as low as fifty dollars, and passed them perk, and then sold them for ten or fifteen thousand. So it was I all bet. it was all good. Yeah, well, that's great. And as you know you've been around through multiple market cycles and I think that's very important to note, right? If, if you've only been on the upside of one, you know, like myself since 2008, you kind of get blindsided in, in the boat rising all the tide rising all ships. So what have you learned 
going through market cycles and is there a different strategy that you like to change to, right? You have those tools in your tool belt, which is really good. So do you see, you know, when a market's about to decline, do you see a different type of opportunity presenting itself? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been through, you know, 2008, which was the biggest decline, you know, since I've been investing. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize uh, how long lasting the recession in 2008 was going to be. You know, I was thinking maybe a year or two and we'd be done, we'd be out of it. No, it's been much more long lasting than that. But throughout that entire period, I was still buying properties. I, was, I bought properties in 2008. I bought properties in 2009. I bought properties every year. There mm-hmm. wasn't a year that I like sat on the sidelines and didn't buy any properties. After the recession, you know, in 2008, there were a lot less buyers. Um, builders went out of business. So a lot of builders weren't buying properties. In fact, most of the property, most of the builders weren't doing any spec houses and were doing very few, uh, you know, custom builds. Um, there were a lot of lots created prior to that. Some of those lots still haven't been built on. So there was a big surplus of lots being created in the run-up between um, 2000 and 2008. In some of the areas where I was investing, uh, prices quadrupled in eight years. But then in 2008, they were cut by 50%. So it was, it was a, a sharp increase and then a sharp decrease. But there were less buyers then, and I was able to get properties with very little competition, and I was able to get properties at lower prices in 2008. Now today, there's a lot of competition. You know, there's a lot of people that are flipping that are, are aggressively looking to buy properties, and uh, it's hard to find properties. It's hard to find properties at low prices because of all the competitive uh, buyers that there are in the marketplace today that weren't in the marketplace in 2008. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of, you know, the three different <clears throat> sections of the book, you know, you start with houses and apartments and I kind of want to highlight each one um, and then go, we'll go to land and subdivisions. So I'd like to talk about your, you know, your, either your favorite deal, or your favorite strategy per topic. So let's start with houses. One of your favorite deals. <clears throat> um, excuse me. Yep. One of the best deals, um, it's in the book, uh, was a house that I bought that was only 12 years old. And um, it had three mortgages on it. It had a first mortgage, it had a second mortgage, and it had a third mortgage on it. And the first mortgage was foreclosing at the sheriff's sale. And when the foreclosing mortgage holder is foreclosing, they have to notify the other lien holders and tell them that their liens are going to be wiped out. So the second and third mortgage would be wiped out 
if the first mortgage is the one that's foreclosing. And it gives uh, them the second and third mortgage lien holders notice and they could actually come to the sale and they could purchase the property, which would protect their, their lien. Otherwise, you know, if it was sold to a third party, it, it, unless it, it was um, sufficiently bid up to go over what the first lien was, there would be no proceeds going to the second or third mortgage holder. In this specific case, the second and third mortgage holders, they were institutions and they had similar names, but they were totally unrelated. You know, like one was like First National Bank and the other one was like First National Savings and Loan. <laughs> and they were totally unrelated. Their headquarters were in different states. No, they weren't even in the same state. And the attorney that was handling the foreclosure for the first lender, which was also out of state, um, only notified one of them because he wrongly assumed that they were the same company. So it goes through the sheriff's sale. Nobody bids on it except the bank. The bank becomes the owner, but the third lien holder was never notified, so their lien wasn't wiped out. And the bank even went and had the property listed for sale and there was somebody under contract to buy it. But this third mortgage was a, a cloud on the title and they couldn't get title insurance, so they couldn't settle. <laughs> the um, first mortgage bank that, that now was the owner also didn't pay the real estate taxes. So after the sheriff's sale, it was on the tax sale list and I went and looked at it and it's vacant and there's no realtor sign on it. So I didn't, I didn't know initially that it was listed for sale or there was a contract on it. And I looked at the house and it was, it was a nice house. It's, uh, it's a large house. It, it has four bedrooms and three full baths and a two car garage. And it's only 12 years old. It's on a cul-de-sac. It's a nice house. So I went to the uh, tax sale and there were some other people that were bidding on it, but uh, I, I prevailed and I ended up buying it for $30,000. Well, the house is worth $330,000. So, but we have this problem with this, this um, outstanding third mortgage on the property. And, so the first bank lien holder had to go through a second sheriff's sale process in order to wipe out the third mortgage. And before that happened, I became the owner. And um, I wasn't exactly sure whether we were going to keep the property or you know, whether the bank was going to sue me or, or what was going on. But I hired an attorney and, and, we prevailed through some legal matters and I ended up being the owner of the property. Kind of the irony of this whole thing is the third mortgage holder was never in default. The former owner had arranged that through a friend of a friend, like a friend of them said, go to this place, they'll give you a third mortgage. And so the, they went there and they got this third mortgage. So then when they lost the house and when they were, not paying their, their first and second mortgage, 
they felt compelled to pay on the third mortgage because it was arranged through their friend and they didn't want to cause a problem with their friend. So they paid that mortgage and they continued to pay it even after they weren't the owner of the property until they paid it off in full. So that mortgage, that third mortgage was never in default. <laughs> um, so it was a, like a real unusual circumstance. Um, we went in and we cleaned and we painted, but there wasn't any, you know, like major work that needed to be done. And the first tenant that we rented it to paid us $2,050 a month in rent. So we paid $30,000 for the house and then we got over $24,000 back in the first year in rent. <laughs> so it was a pretty good deal. Yeah, I put that in the books as a good deal. <laughs> yeah, it's in the book. It's a, it's, it's a good deal. <laughs> That's great. No, I love that. And so in terms of, you know, tax sales, do you, do you, you know, you know, farming your local area, do you keep up on, you know, the properties that are going to tax sale? And is that something that you check every so often? Um, they have tax sale here uh, in my area once a year. Mm. And depending on the size of the county, um, the list can be pretty extensive. And they publish the list. Um, some of the counties publish it online. Some of them publish it in the newspaper. Uh, there could be 3,000 properties on the list 30 days before the sale. But 90% of those drop off the list <laughs> you know, by the time of the sale. So it's, diff it's difficult to work on it because you could spend a lot of time working on you know, doing the research of the property and going and looking at the properties and then they're, they're not sold mm. for one reason or another. <clears throat> um, I just went to a tax sale recently and in the last 24 hours, you know, I got the list, I, I got the list previously, but I also got a second list, an updated list, the day before the sale. And in the last day, um, like 700 people paid their taxes. <laughs> so it went from like a thousand the day before the sale to 300 the day of the sale. So even if you wait till the end, it's hard figuring out which properties are going to go to for sale. Uh, some properties look like they're going to go to sale and then the people pay them off and they don't go to sale. So it makes it really difficult. Also, um, they uh, transfer all the liens with the property. So when you buy the property, if there's a mortgage on it, you get the mortgage. So you're responsible for the mortgage. So you have to do a title search uh, before you, know, you go to the sale to figure out which properties are worth buying, which properties are not worth buying. Mm. So it's mm. difficult to do. Yeah, and it sounds expensive doing a title search. Do you perform that yourself, or do you have your attorney do that? Um, at one time, I had my office in an attorney's office. Um, and they did almost all exclusively real estate business. They had five title abstractors uh, on staff, uh, usually the uh, real estate companies that do settlement 
they just farm that out to some other company that does the searching. So uh, since there were searchers there on staff, I talked to the owner of the company, the owner of the law firm. I said, could I uh, go around with your abstractors and, and learn how to do title searching? And he said, sure. And, and so I went with different abstractors. I went to different counties and I learned how to do title searching. Sort of like learning how to do perk tests. It's mm. real estate related, but it's ancillary. And I don't know anybody, well, I know one person who has both of those skills as a real estate investor who does title searching and does perk tests. Mm -hmm. um, back in the day, um, like before 9 11, we were able to go into the courthouse and they closed the courthouse at, this was before things were online. You had to go to the courthouse in order to do a title search. Um, as long as you were in the building at 4.30, they'd lock the building at 4.30, they let you stay there as long as you wanted. So before the tax sale, um, my partner and I, and we hired two abstractors to work for us on an hourly basis and so all four of us were there doing title searches at night. Some nights we were there past midnight. We were <laughs> the only ones there in the building, you know, except like the janitorial service was there. And then once you left, you couldn't get back in because they had like a guard at the, at the door. So we were doing extensive title search work. We were doing ourselves with the four of us doing title searches. We were able to knock it out pretty quickly. Um, but since then, we're not doing that anymore. I still know how to do title searches. But uh, this last uh, couple sales, which uh, I just went to recently, I hired somebody and I taught them how to do title searches like I want them done. And so he did the title searches for us. That's not his regular job. He takes vacation in order to work for us to do title searching when we need them right before the tax sale. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so he's, he's trained by us and he only works for us and he enjoys it. You know, he, he thinks this is fun. You know, it's, it's uh, like research. It's you know, a little bit of detective type work and you know, there's, there's several different components to it. Um, it's somewhat difficult because it's tedious. You know, you have to um, stay focused and not get distracted. And you, you have to not miss any like detail. You miss like one detail that could be like catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so great. You need somebody uh, with special inclinations you know, that wants to do the work and finds it enjoyable and, well, that's amazing. I love how you, <laughs> it's a great story though. Just stay past midnight, some nights, title searches, getting it done. That's, <laughs> it's crazy. Now we would do title searches for hundreds of properties. And, um, at that time, I think we had more extensive research than anybody else who was doing tax sale. So how long would it, so, so what's the, the quick overview process without going into a final, uh, full title search, you know, looking past the chain and, and trying to find 
you know, the history of the property. Can you give that overview real quick? Yeah, we're looking for uh, liens against the property, you know, mortgages and judgments and federal tax lien and, and state tax liens. Um, we did research on a property and there was a judgment because the owner had gotten into a bar fight and the person that he was in the fight with sued him and, and won a judgment against him for, I guess, like, you know, medical cost and physical harm and stuff like that. So you can have lots of judgments for different things. Um, one property that I just recently bought had mechanics liens on it. And that's where somebody does work on the property and they weren't paid. Uh, and so, you know, it could be like a roofer or HVAC or plumber or somebody like that uh, did work at the property, weren't paid. They put a lien on the property. You know, so you got to look at all those different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Now, in terms of, do you still buy a property with that type of liens? If, if for instance, you have a workout with a mechanics lien, you know, can you talk to that person and, and negotiate that price? <clears throat> Sometimes. Um, it's hard to do before the tax sale because you don't know if the property is actually going to go for sale. Mm. So you usually um, can only negotiate effectively be, you know, because of the time restraints and the numbers restraints and all that after you actually purchase the property. Um, we've been able to negotiate some on, on some of those. Um, it's a little bit different than sheriff's sale because their lien's not going to be wiped out. Mm. So, you know, they feel like, well, they're going to get their money eventually one way or another. So it's hard to negotiate the amount versus at a sheriff's sale where their lien would be wiped out and they maybe get nothing. So um, they might be willing to um, help with the title issue, you know, for a small amount of money. Mm -hmm. So every sheriff sale, that's when the, every lien is wiped out. As long as they're notified. As, as long as, as the example, <laughs> as the example I gave, yeah, you know, they're not notified. Their lien's not wiped out. So one of the things you have to do in your research, you know, on both tax sales and sheriff sales, is see who got notice. Good point. You only learned that lesson once, right? You only need to learn it once. <laughs> yep. Now, in terms of uh, commercial real estate, so you have a section on apartments. What type of creative, you know, juices are flowing when you when a, you see a commercial property come across your desk? Um, the very second property I bought was a three unit, and it was an estate, and there was like five or six heirs. Mm -hmm. They didn't have it listed. They didn't have a sign on the property. Um, you can't sell in secret. You know, if you're going to sell a property, people have to know. Like um, sometimes in my brokerage company, people would say to me, well, I don't want to put the property in the model. List. I don't want to sign on the property. And I say, well, do you really want to sell it? Because <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can't sell something if nobody knows it's available for sale. So advertising and, and promoting the property is part of the selling process. But anyway, this, this three unit, uh, the way that I found out about it was um, my wife worked at the same place 
as somebody, and this was owned by their grandmother, and their grandmother had passed away. And that was the only way that I found out about property. And as far as I could tell, they didn't have any other prospects. You know, they weren't advertising it. It wasn't listed for sale, wasn't a sign on the property. So um, I went and looked at the property. It was an older property and needed work, but uh, I put in an offer and I ended up getting the property. Um, I ended up owning that property for 37 years. Um, and we had done a lot of improvements over 37 years. You know, we had, we had replaced the furnaces and hot water heaters and kitchens and roofs and windows and siding. We had done a ton of work over 37 years, as you would expect. And, uh, somebody asked me if I had something for sale and I told them what I had for sale. And they said, well, I wasn't really looking for single family. Do you have any apartments? And I said, well, I have this apartment building. Uh, I later ended up buying the apartment building next to it too. So I had two buildings right next to each other. And I said, I don't have this listed for sale, but I'd consider selling it. And so they came and looked at it and uh, we worked out a deal and they ended up buying it. So it wasn't for sale either. And I told them I owned it 37 years. And coincidentally, the people that owned it before me, they owned it for 37 years. <laughs> so in 74 years, there had only been two owners. And I said to these guys that, that bought the building, I said, you know, people don't look at that sort of thing, but I think that that's an indicator of a good property. You know, if people sell a property and it has a different owner every other year, it's probably not a good property and people are, are buying it. It doesn't live up to their expectations. And so then they're dumping it. But if you see a property that's been owned by the same owner for 37 years and the owner before it owned it for 37 years, it's probably a good property. And that's why they kept it so long. But I don't think anybody looks at that as a factor in their decision on whether to buy a property or not. Um, so I sold the, those buildings to, uh, uh, these investors and I sold it for six times what I paid for it. <laughs> but I had owned it for 37 years. So yeah. I would expect to sell it for a lot more than I, I paid for it, but I did sell it for six times what I paid for it. And I was satisfied with the selling price. You know, I think, I think they got a good deal and uh, it's a money making property. That's great. And you know, creating the cash flow all along the way, you know, that's, that's amazing. That's right. Yep. And I, I think that's a good point to point out that you said that it's look for those quick turnovers, you know, and, and that's an important factor in that, you know, in the quest to, to own real estate. Yeah. If, if the property's you no know, for sale and the owners only owned it for two years and the owner before him only owned it for two years, you, know, you want to know why, why is that the case? Mm -hmm. Yep. That's well said. And you talk a lot about land subdivisions in the book. And, and this is always something that, you know, I've thought about as a real estate investor, but never really got there. I think, you know, what I hear mostly is that it's kind of an alligator, right? There's a lot of fees associated with just raw land without any income. So what's, what's your take on, on hearing that? Yeah, that's true. Um, but we've had some, um, really 
phenomenal properties. They're, they're in the book. We had um, two properties where we grossed over a million, you know, on the property. So that kind of makes up for not having monthly rent. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are expenses. Uh, there's a lot of expenses to do a development. Um, speed is uh, one of your friends. You know, the faster you can do a subdivision, the better off you are because um, the time value of money and getting the property on the market as soon as possible. We usually um, allocate one year to get all the approvals for a subdivision. And then our business plan is we want to sell out in three years. Mm -hmm. you know, we want every lot to be sold in three years. Mm -hmm. um, we've done subdivisions as big as a hundred acres and we've sold them out. We sold that one out in um, less than three years. We did another one uh, where we grossed uh, over a million and it took us less than a year to get the approvals, which was a, a good thing. And we sold that out, I think in 22 months. So we weren't in the property very long. And um, that one, we required 3,000 square foot minimum size houses with three car attached garages and 90% of the front had to be masonry. So there were nice houses in there and we sold them really quickly and we actually sold them for more than we had projected you know, to be the sale price. Um, we sold two acre lots in there uh, for around a hundred thousand dollars each. So who's your end buyer and are, are you going dividing and then selling lots off individually for someone to build their yes. dream home? Okay. That would, that would typically be what we do. Um, we sell to end users who are going to build their own home. Mm -hmm. We also sell to um, builders who are going to build either a spec or a custom house. Um, so we don't have like cookie cutter subdivisions where every house looks the same. Mm -hmm. uh, like on the one that we had a uh, hundred acres, um, about half of them were, were sold to end users and the other half were sold to builders. And I think there were maybe six different builders that came in. We didn't have a, a list of builders. We, any builder could come in as long as they met the protective covenants, the, the size and, and all the other requirements. It's interesting. And do you do any, you know, seller financing for those contractors that come in? Any creative, you know? Not usually. Um, we did one where, um, we subordinated our mortgage, um, which is, is commonly done in land subdivisions where, you know, as the owner of the property, we would typically have a first mortgage, but we will, in, in one or two cases, we've allowed the builder come in, they get a mortgage, that mortgage goes in first position and we bump back the second position and we don't get paid off until the house is sold. But I prefer just to sell the, the lots outright, you know, get our money and uh, you know, let the builder go on. 
in yeah. one of the subdivisions that we did, a builder bought two lots at the same time. And I said, at settlement to the builder, I said, uh, you're going to build on, on one lot and then you know, show it and people come by and they say, well, I don't like this, I don't like that. And then you say, well, I have another lot down the street. I can build you exactly what you want. He said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. He said, there's economy of the scales if we build both houses at the same time. You know, we have, you know, the carpenters and the drywallers and the plumbers and the HVAC and the roofers and that. You know, they do one house, then they go and do the other house. So they're doing two houses simultaneously. Well, then the market tailed off. They had built these two houses. The market tailed off. They sold one of the houses, but they couldn't sell the other one. They ended up going in foreclosure, and the contracting company went bankrupt. Whereas, you know, if, if he would have done what, what I had asked him, you know, what he was going to do, I think he might have you know, been able to survive. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. No, I think spec houses are uh, really difficult to do. And I would never build a spec house. You know, I'd build a custom house and if I was a builder, but I don't think I'd build spec houses because you're at the whim of the market. Mm. No, that's interesting. No, with that reflection, have you ever built brand new construction with the raw land that you've had, you know, like a high and view situation, or is that too much risk going out and being at the whim of the market? Um, I've only built one house and how it came to be was um, I had a client that I had already sold another house to and they wanted a house with um, very specific things. So I showed them houses that were already existing and they didn't like any of them. And I had a subdivision there that was already approved and ready to build. And so I said to them, um, would you be interested in a new build? And they said, yes. And uh, we designed the house to their specifications and you know, we built the house and you know, they moved in. Um, coincidentally, we were doing a big remodel at another place simultaneous to this where we doubled the size of a house, which was almost the same as building a new house. <laughs> so yeah. at one location, we were building a new house. At another location, we were doubling the size of the house. And the place where we were double the size of the house, um, we took all the shingles off of the existing house so that when we re-roofed the house, all the shingles would be brand new and all look the same. The addition wouldn't have new shingles and the old section have old shingles. We also took all the siding off the, the old part of the house and put new siding on the old part of the house and the new part of the house so that it blended in so it looked like it was the addition was part of the house rather than some afterthought that was added on. Mm -hmm. We ended up on the, the property we're doing in addition, we spent $200 a foot on construction and on the house we built from scratch on a vacant lot, we spent $100 a foot. 
So it cost us twice as much money to do an addition on a house than it did to build a brand new house. It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. It's a, it's, it's creative process and, and your resume is just, you got so much going on and it, it's amazing as you call it, you know, different tools in your tool belt, you know, being able to handle each situation. So, um, you know, before we wrap things up, I ask uh, each interviewee the, the best three tips they've ever got on business, real estate, and life. So what's the, the best thing you've ever learned um, in business? Um, my friend who, who bought real estate before me um, has kind of helped me along the way. Uh, I've asked him questions and um, he's really turned me on to, to buying rentals. So the, the rentals were a good thing to buy. Uh, when I had my office at the attorney's office, he also was a big real estate investor. And he, he told me that he made more money on his real estate properties than he did on his law practice, <laughs> um, which was kind of eye opening. And um, my friend who started out before me, um, I tell the story in the book when I bought my first house, it didn't have a refrigerator. And so I, I needed to buy a refrigerator and he came and helped me. And, uh, I was looking in the ads for newspapers going to buy a used refrigerator had limited funds. And we, uh, there was an ad that was like 50% higher than my budget was for a refrigerator. And I didn't want to go look at it. He says, well, let's just go look at it. Maybe they'll take less. <laughs> so we went and looked at it. The refrigerator was only three months old. And uh, it was sitting in their hallway. They weren't using it. And uh, I offered them what, what my budget was, which I had money for, and that we would take it away immediately. And uh, so the owner decided that they would sell the refrigerator for um, a third less than they were asking. You know, they were getting the cash and it was going to be out of their hallway and we'd be gone. They'd never see us again. <laughs> so his, um, maybe they'll take less, uh, has always stuck with me. And you know, whether you're in negotiations for a refrigerator or for a house, um, maybe they'll take less. I love that. That's a, that's a beautiful point. <laughs> What about uh, best tip ever when it comes to real estate investing? Um, the attorney that I had my office with, he told me he bought properties and he kept them um, uh, as rentals and you know, they were paid off. And uh, he told me, you know, you can't go wrong with rentals. You know, just keep them. Don't sell them. Um, basically you know buy and keep forever mm -hmm. and um, I think that you know that's a good approach uh, I sort of had that approach on the property that I owned for 37 years I did sell it eventually but 37 years is close enough to forever <laughs> yep I love that. And that, that's interesting. That's, that's the second time I've heard that this month from a successful real estate investor, you know, kind of regretting those things you sell, but 
37 years. That's, that's a long time. So <laughs> it is. Yeah. What about life? Best tip you ever got on life? Oh boy. <clears throat> it's a loaded one. <laughs> I can't think of just one off the top of my head. Um, I try to uh, look at uh, at life positively, um, and I think that is reflective in my investment. That you know, I look at a property, and no matter how bad it is or what condition it's in, you know, I want to look at what can be done positively to make it a, a better property. And mm. so I, I try to have a, a positive attitude. Um, uh, my parents um, were both hard workers. Um, I think my mother used to say, you know, hard work never hurt anybody. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, their guidance and their drive, you know, is reflected in me that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm still working at it. You know, I'm still buying properties. I'm still selling properties. I'm still rehabbing properties. And I'll probably continue doing that. Good. Get that lifelong enjoyment. You know, I think that's, that's important, right? That's Having right. that passion. All right. Well, I appreciate your time so much, David. Do you want to tell the listeners the best place to find out more about you and where to purchase your book? Uh, yes. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Bigger Pockets. I did a Bigger Pockets podcast. Um, uh, this is my book. How I Started with Nothing made $12 million. The book is available at uh, uh, www. 12 million dollar book.com and 12 is one two the, the numerals and uh, if you buy the book on that website it's free shipping and it's 39.95 it's um, 370 pages there's 270 case studies in the book in each one of the case studies <clears throat> we didn't talk about this but one of the reasons why i wrote the book was I felt that a lot of other real estate books, which as you can see behind me, I have a whole bunch of those, uh, were lacking in details. Mm. Um, if there were examples given in a book, you couldn't duplicate it because there weren't enough uh, specifics of the example to duplicate. I felt that that was a lacking, a shortcoming in other books, and I tried to resolve that in my own book. So for every one of the case studies, which are actual properties that I bought, you know, they're not my students or friends of mine or deals I heard about or anything else like that. These are my deals. I have what I paid for the property, what I sold the property for, what I rented it for, uh, what was the source of the deal? So how did I come across this deal? What was the source of the funding for the deal? And then the chapter tells what I did with the property, you know, what renovations I might have done. Uh, some interesting things that happened, something that I learned. And in each chapter, I have a section of lessons learned on what lessons I learned in that specific example of the case study. And I think there's like 400 or 500 different lessons learned that are in the book. 
that are things that I learned through the process of buying real estate. Um, I'm mostly self-taught. So the lessons were really valuable because the lessons helped me grow and buy more property. And every property that I bought, I'd learned something. Mm -hmm. I was taught something by the property that I bought and the circumstances. And some of the things were good and some of the things were bad, but uh, I learned a lot. And I wanted to share in, in the book uh, what worked, what didn't work, what was good, what was bad, so that other people didn't have to duplicate my mistakes, that they could skip over the mistakes and go just to the parts that were good. Mm -hmm. And you've done a phenomenal job with the book and it's, it's a bargain at that price. And I think the best thing I learned, like you said, where other books are lacking, you, you kind of pick that up. And if anything, it's, it's teaching you different ways and different tools so you can add it to your tool belt. And I, I love that. It's, it's just that creative process of, Oh, you know, I never thought about that. Oh, let me avoid that mistake. And, and it, it's great. And, and if you can just get one tip, right? That's what I say with each book. If it just teaches me one thing, it's, it's worth it all day. I hope you get more than one. Yeah, <laughs> one per chapter at minimum. <laughs> no, that's good. But thank you so much, David. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for being on the show and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Scott. It was a pleasure being here. And that concludes our book club interview with author David Krulak, who wrote the book, How I Started With Nothing and Made $12 Million in Real Estate Part-Time, and the real estate lessons he learned along the way. Uh, phenomenal book. Uh, highly recommend you pick up a copy. It's got 134 chapters of amazing knowledge with no fluff. It, it's great because like we were talking about during the podcast, I think what the book really did for me was it expanded expanded my creative process right and it added more tools to my tool belt to if a deal you know comes across my desk or it, it's been on you know days on market for over 360 days and, and and no one else sees the value but you can somehow you know spot that value add and and beat out the competition i think that that says it all and and, and Dave's got so much in this book that it's going to help your real estate investing career. And, and he, he's quite the intelligent investor and he's been around a long time. So it's it's amazing that you can get inside of every deal he's almost ever done. And he tells you the process and, and that's amazing. And, and there's no upsell to, to a coaching program or something else. And I, I think Dave's just that, that real guy who's really trying to help other people with his book and I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can pick up a copy. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. My name is Scott Hollister, your host, and we'll see you next time.